This is Good Morning Liberty. Oh, back in the saddle again, and it feels so good. Charlie, is that you? It's me. I know everyone missed me terribly. I got all kinds of emails. <laughs> it was just like, please come back to the show, Charlie. It was. I've been announcing myself as Chuck lately. Yeah. My yeah. girlfriend the other day was like, what are you doing? Why are you saying Chuck? I was like, because I can. Yeah, just this say is Chuck. This my show. You Do you want to introduce yourself as Charles? No. Yeah. Unless uh, unless I become a prince one day. Prince Charles That sounds, would be good. Yeah, it sounds pretty formal. Yeah, like okay. Like a tuxedo t-shirt. Do you have any plans on becoming a prince anytime? Well, depends. Okay. I mean, <laughs> it, you know, if I amass a, my trillion dollar goal, it's possible somebody would make me a prince somewhere. Do you want to become the world's first trillionaire first, I guess? I'm, yeah, I'm on my way. That's a good That's goal. That's what I'm doing. It's a good goal. Hey, this is the Good Morning Liberty podcast, it by is. the way. Forgot to say that. And we're running that sip and scan uh, code special for you to subscribe to your favorite podcast. If you haven't subscribed yet, uh, Nate, I listened to a couple of your episodes while I was gone. They were pretty okay. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. They were good. It is so They're hard really to good. sit here and talk. But you know, as I was listening at the beginning, you you were just so nice and sincere. And you were like, man, for all of you guys that have subscribed, we really appreciate it. And if you have, go leave a rating and review. If you haven't hit subscribe do that for us and it was very nice and i was like man i should subscribe and i was like oh i already am and then like by i don't know if you noticed i get more and more upset as the episode goes on the more all of this information piles up in my head and i just sound so, like i'm lecturing my teenage daughter by that time at, at the beginning we're all like, happy and chipper it's yeah you know it's fun and then we go through all of the reasons why your liberty's being taken away. <laughs> I get so serious during the episodes, I know. especially when you're not here, and that that and helps me. What's hilarious is that we're like, I don't know. There's probably several of you that medicine person, uh, obviously, you know, friends and family of the show, and then we have people that we've met at different conventions and conferences and things like that. Um, so we're two of the like most non-serious people you'll ever meet. <laughs> And half of uh, less than half of what we say is serious. I, I know, say. I know, and uh, I don't know. We're just so passionate about this whole liberty thing. Yeah, you know, it was really weird. I got a lot of comments about, um, you know, people told me I was really nice and really outgoing and and like good to talk to and everything, which is hilarious to me because I am the opposite of that. You're so introverted. Yeah, like I do not like talking. Yeah. I like talking to people. Um, I'm not, I don't mean it that way. It's just, I feel really awkward and like anxious when I'm talking to people, which is strange. Cause you're pretty good at it. You are pretty good. But at then it. when it, like the time comes and we're at a convention would just, it's like a switch flips. And I just start talking to people like it's my whole life's dream. We gave a speech at the young Americans for Liberty thing. We never even, I mean, I've never given a speech in public before. Hmm. Have you ever done that? I have. Yeah. When? It seemed like you did a pretty good job. I mean, you ran meetings and stuff, I know. I guess, I guess yeah, that you counts, know, with too. clients and CEOs <laughs> and those people. That makes yeah. you nervous. I also think doing this podcast makes you probably better at speaking to people. Yeah, the it's, more you speak, the better you get at it. That's, oh, that's, yeah. that's, that's an interesting idea. You know, talking about, you know, I was talking about liberty and why we chose that. It's almost like, look, I'm going to say it like this. Liberty chose me. All right. <laughs> this is whole idea, though. I was listening to uh, Jordan B. Peterson podcast uh, actually this morning. And one thing, a, a user, a user, an audience member, or I guess a fan of his, if you want to call him fan, whatever. They asked him a question. They said, um, 
well, they kind of made a statement and they said, I wish I wasn't so smart, basically, like, because then I wouldn't care as much. I wish I was just dumb. Like, what do I do about that? And that reminded me about like why we are so in enthusiastic is the wrong word. Like passionate, I, passionate. And I honestly believe it's my duty. Yeah, that's like true. I, like I believe deeply and sincerely, like this is my calling. Yeah. And there are so many days where I was like, man, it would be so easy if I just didn't believe in liberty. Yeah. Like if I didn't care, if I didn't care about the direction of our country, if I didn't care about the lives that could be destroyed, if we move towards socialism or fascism or communism or whatever, I would, some days it would just be so much easier if we just didn't care. Ignorance is bliss sometimes. Yeah. I've, I've also felt the same way, like kind of envious for about people who go through life and never think about the kind of things that we talk about. Right. They're always like, ah, I just don't talk about religion or politics because it's too much. Yeah. I'm like, man, that would be awesome. Like you just like the, the thing that you most care about, like the most controversial thing in your life is like what football team you follow, stuff like that. I'm so envious of that. Right. And, and I, and when that person asked that question, I agreed, like, I question all the time, would would everything be easier if I just didn't care about this stuff? Because it's stressful all oh, the time. It it's always there. Like, when I go home, I spend all day here making, you know, writing articles, making videos, crafting some dank memes, and, uh, and just learning how to code whenever I'm in the middle of researching stuff too. I'm like, oh, let me just write a SQL query real quick mm -hmm. and just see if that works. So Let me pull some data. So, and then when I go home, it... It still doesn't stop. I, I still am researching things, researching economics, making these memes. I'm I'm trying to talk to people on social media. I see why people hire social media managers for sure, mm -hmm. because it's a full time job trying to be out there actually engaging with people just on one platform. Yeah, just there's one. many of them. I can spend all day on Facebook trying to come up with new ways to engage our audience, which, by the way, apparently Facebook's not cool anymore, though. It's the not. Kids. That's true. That's true. They're my all wife, about the Insta. My wife has said that to me before. She's like, no one uses Facebook anymore. You know, you don't you don't use that. That's your login for a bunch of stuff like that. That's mm, about it. There's a lot of people on there. Still. There are still a lot of people for sure. But hey, and by the way, thank you to everyone who shares all of our stuff, because for the first time ever, we crossed one million people reach from our Facebook page. That's amazing. We crossed one. It's like one million twenty seven thousand or something like that. And so now anytime we dip back bo below a million, I'm going to feel like we're failing, honestly. <laughs> but I mean, that that's such a cool thing. And it's it's literally only because people keep sharing all of the articles and the videos and and the memes and, and all of those things. And that's just really cool because we're getting this message out there. It's a message that can actually help people. You know, socialism sounds like it can help people, but it actually, it hurts people. Yeah. Um, it's an easier message to sell for sure, because it says that you're not responsible. Everyone else is. That's an easier message to sell. Our message is very, very difficult to sell to people, but we're helping, you know, people are helping us get that message out there. And it's not just about us, you know, trying to be like famous in the liberty movement or anything like that. Like we're trying to get this message and these goals and these solutions out there to actually help people. So thank you to everyone who's been sharing everything. We and really appreciate that. Also famous. 
And well, and that's the good thing about capitalism too. Is actually in our pursuit of becoming famous in the liberty movement, we could save a lot of people's lives. So that's the brilliant part about capitalism. Exactly, it's so good. So, do you want to run through some news? I do. Real I quick? do. I I wanted to wrap up though. I just like I wanted to finish that thought of if you feel like you have a burden, like something, like I said, I feel like liberty chose me, and that's because. You know, um, I believe it was Carl Jung, uh, who I found out through Peterson reading some of his work, was that people don't have ideas, ideas have people. Um, and that's because people die and ideas continue along. And so this idea of liberty, like I honestly believe it is my burden. And some days, it, you know, you feel like it could be easier not to engage in something like that. But if you have something that beckons to you as Peterson would say, or, or is burning. Like you feel like this is your cross to bear. That's what you should be pursuing. Um, that's what gives you purpose and meaning in life. And that is you aiming at your, the highest aim you can possibly aim at. And so when it comes to personal responsibility and leaving, uh, living a meaningful life, you know, we talk about life, liberty, and the pursuit of meaning doing that is what gives you the most, um, credible, an amazing life experience that you can possibly get out of your existence. And why did we change life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to life, liberty, and the pursuit of meaning, Charlie? Because happiness is fleeting. Yeah. It's not always going to exist. Happiness is just an emotion that you are lucky enough to feel sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's it's nothing that you're going to have forever. It's, it's when something good happens, you can feel happiness, you right. know? But having meaning in your life, like... Charlie and I have found through talking about liberty all the time and trying to help people through this kind of message all the time. Well, that gives us meaning, something you can always fall back on for a reason that you're here and a reason that you have to keep going. And it's your why all the time. It's it's why I'm going to continue to be stressed out about this stuff all the time and why I'm going to keep reading different economics books and getting in arguments with people and trying to change people's minds about things like that's why. And it's it's gives you meaning that gets you through all of those really tough times. It so. does. And if you want some new reading material, for all of you listening, and Nate, you as well. Yep. I told you about this earlier. Yep. Uh, Rand Paul has a new book out called The Case Against Socialism. And so if you want to look at some, uh, they've done the, some ridiculously well-researched material on you look at some of these socialist countries currently. Uh, there's a little one in Africa. I honestly can't remember the name of it. It's just it's just makes you sick to your stomach what these people do. Uh, Venezuela, like I had no idea that Hugo Chavez's daughter, his daughter, Chavez's daughter, the socialist who complained about rich people, she's worth four point two billion dollars. And how did that happen? Chavez, before Maduro took over, I'm sure Maduro's doing the same thing. Chavez took state money and wire transferred it over to private Swiss bank accounts. And now his daughter's worth $4.2 billion. She's the richest woman in Venezuela. She's not starving, but there's plenty of people starving in the streets. And, and this is what happens. It's the elite become rich and powerful. Everyone else starves to death. And so another great read, pick up The Case Against Socialism. So so let's... joining us to talk about his new book, The Case Against Socialism, <laughs> is Senator Rand Paul. Rand, just kidding. Let's talk about the news real quick. I'll talk to his publicist. <laughs> hey, speaking of Venezuela... Obviously, they're not that bad because they've earned a seat on the UN Human Rights Council, so they can't be that bad. 
right? Yeah, this coming from the Washington Post, I believe, or CNN. Venezuela wins seat on UN Human Rights Council. Now, how in the world could you possibly imagine that happening? I don't know. It's like the UN will take anybody. Yeah. <laughs> so is United, it all the work he's done to combat obesity? It must be. <laughs> yeah, because we had we had an obesity problem, and he is definitely wiping that out of Venezuela, uh, except for himself. Good. Feels good to laugh about starvation. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> That's so terrible, but it's true. That's so funny because it's true, Joe, yeah, isn't it? Yes. So United Nations Human Rights Council, the Human Rights Council is an intergovernmental body within the United States, within the United Nations system made up of 47 states responsible for the promotion and protection of all human rights around the globe. And somehow Venezuela wins a seat on that <laughs> Human Rights Council. Now, my God, have they just committed complete atrocities in the article the his opposition um uh garcia uh, uh i don't know i don't know Sorry. i think i think that's it the guy who's you know trying to to unseat maduro uh said that the same exact day which was yesterday thursday that they were awarded the seat um one of the one of his own party members was murdered hmm. yeah shot in the back twice his head was covered and his body was burned Wow. So that was a human rights violation on the day they got the human rights seat. So does this, I mean, I'm not a big fan of the United Nations anyway, but I mean, this has to just completely destroy the meaning behind everything that they say or do. I mean, it, it does to me anyway. Like, oh, the UN Human Rights Council has issued a blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you guys got freaking Maduro from Venezuela on your, right. on your council. Like, why would I listen to anything that you say? It's like starting an organization against murder, and it's made up of a board of directors of murderers. Yeah, it's just a bunch of serial <laughs> killers, and they, and they talk yeah. about how terrible other people are that are right. murdering people. Yeah, but not themselves. Yep, yep, yep. What's next? Well, we got from the Washington Examiner. Listen to this: the Trump campaign is threatening to sue CNN over pro impeachment bias, and they're they're going to demand a substantial payment. So your brother actually called and, and was talking about this story earlier. Oh, wow. Basically, what happened was that um, th this is what he was talking about, where they, they got onto CNN's conference call, basically, and was, was listen were listening to him, to them, uh, come up with all the ways that they were going to try and take down Trump. And they've, they've been exhibiting a lot of bias, obviously. And they were, they're also allegedly purposefully throwing out a bunch of fake news, putting all kinds of fake news out there. CNN is. So he's <clears> right <throat> when he calls them fake news CNN. Yeah, which I think that can apply to most news agencies, yeah. probably. Not us. Yeah, not us. No, we're no. not. fake. This is an actual news story that right. we're talking. This is not fake news. It's no. a real news story. So, That's right. Um, I don't know how I feel about this, though, like threatening to sue a media company because of their bias against you. Can you, what's the precedent that that sets? Because my assumption, and I haven't watched them in a while, but my assumption is that while Barack Obama was in office, Fox News was probably pretty biased against Obama while he was in office. Well, no. I mean, they're fair and balanced, they say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, to me, they are more fair and balanced than the other news agencies. They do have 
liberals on their programs to talk to uh, actually talk about things and right. and it's really difficult if you're a conservative or especially a libertarian to get on MSNBC or CNN or something like that. They're not very good at letting other information out there. So, but you know, I just I would just worry about what precedent this would set. Like what constitutes bias? Um are they going to be found, you know, actually guilty of creating any kind of fake news stories that can't be explained in some kind of way uh and you know what does this do for media overall and freedom of the press if you're especially biased against the person who's off in office and you're just basically talking negative about uh, about them all the time like what precedent does that set for them to be able to sue you yeah i mean the freedom of the press you could absolutely have bias yeah and that's been going on for since the beginning of press. Yeah. When was that? Um, probably I, the beginning of time. Yeah, probably, yeah. Maybe not the beginning of time. The beginning of consciousness, let's say that. <laughs> There's been biases in your um, in your coverage yeah. of, of other people, let's say. <laughs> because yeah. you have your own version of reality that you're trying to portray, and you're trying to convince people to join your side of, of the aisle, let's say, because you want people to agree with you. Everybody wants everybody to agree with them like they're the one you're the one that's always right and uh so the thing about it is is like i think i think uh like slander and libel i think those things are definitely you know you can sue somebody over those if somebody you know purposefully defames your character based on false pretenses then that for sure you can have a defamation case against that but as fact as far as them being bias now i think it discredits them i mean massively discredits cnn as a credible news source yeah but as far as trump suing them i mean i think the courts are going to throw that out yeah to me i think more this is a problem for the free market to solve get the information out there that they legitimately are fake news and that might actually that might actually be better for your case than suing them which is more likely to me to uh, sure up their base of support more than likely. Well, that's what I was going to say. They're yeah. probably announcing that they're going to sue just to drum up the base. Yeah, probably. Just to be loud. Get the loud ones going. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, so this from this is from The Guardian. Uh, this is something that happened in Amazon in an Amazon warehouse in Joliet, Illinois. Now, this is probably just because it was in Illinois. But... So there's been some deaths in some of the Amazon warehouses. Now, this article is obviously crafted to make Amazon sound as terrible as possible because uh, the subtitle here is, uh, see, Billy uh, Foister died last month after a heart attack at work. The incident was just one in a series of recent accidents and fatalities. So they're... They're obviously trying to get this idea across that Amazon is a really dangerous place to work. Amazon's killing people. Yeah, and so their blame on this is that uh, they, when the guy, this guy had a heart attack at work, and they look back on the camera footage, and he had been laying there on the floor for 20 minutes before anyone ever got to him or noticed that he was down. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing I'd have to say about that is I think unless you are around a factory like this or a warehouse like this, you really don't understand just how big they are. Like you think about that, that Nissan factory that's like five minutes away from here. You've got to take like a golf cart to go back and forth in that place. It's, it's massive. So I, I think one thing people need to have a little bit of perspective 
on just how big these warehouses are and the fact that Amazon uses a lot of robots to do a lot of things. So there's not just people all over the place in in the warehouse. Mm -hmm. So if you happen to fall down somewhere, it's not necessarily that someone's going to see you do that. You might be the only person in that corner and you might be like two tenths of a mile away from someone and still be in the warehouse. So uh, I'm just, there's a little bit of defense on that, but his family member did add in that three days ago, uh, he had told his brother that he got in trouble for putting something in the wrong bin at work. He said two minutes after he put it in the wrong bin, someone came over and let him know that he had put it in the wrong bin. So that I don't know if they have some kind of tracking devices on the packages there in the warehouse or how that works, but they're, so the, I like to look at, okay, so what's the idea they're trying to get across? They're saying, oh, when he did something wrong at work, they told him in two minutes. And then when they saw him have a heart attack, they just decided they were going to let him lay there and die. Right. Like somebody's making a decision. That's the idea that they're trying to get across. And, And what really happened here was someone happened to be paying attention when he did something the other day wrong. And then someone was not watching the cameras or was not paying attention when this happened. I, I don't see any upside for Amazon uh, allowing a worker to die and lay there on the floor for almost half an hour. Right. Like, uh, I, there's no upside. There's no reason that they would intentionally do that. So that's, but that's the idea that this article is trying to get across. Yeah. So I don't know. You just got to. Well, that and then Amazon has 600,000 employees. They're, they're yeah. one of the largest employers. And so the amount of people that are going to die in the workplace at their, it, it's significantly higher than your mom and pop shops just because there's more chances. Yeah, and I haven't looked at the actual numbers here, but I do know there have been six Amazon worker deaths in the span of bet- between November 2018 and then to April 2019. So it was put on the National Council for Occupational Safety and Health's 2019 Dirty Dozen list for the most dangerous employers in the United States. Wow. I will have to look at some of those other employers and see how many people are dying at those places. But when you think about dangerous places to work... Um, Is the American military on that one? Probably not. <laughs> probably not. Um, I don't know if they would count people who work on barges or who work in oil refineries and things like that. Underwater welders. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if Amazon warehouse worker really constitutes one of the most dangerous jobs that you can have. Um, no, it's no basket weaving. <laughs> No, no, not it's, not at all. It's way of way more advanced. Yeah, than there's that. manual labor, and you know things can happen. Yeah, yeah. Boxes can fall. So, forklift accidents. So anyway, I guess our uh, the point of some of these headlines is just to, it's important to understand the overarching theme that they're trying to get in your head when they have these kind of headlines, and you have to kind of question whether or not it's actually true. Did Amazon? When the worker did something wrong, did they tell him immediately, two minutes later, and then when the person died, they just decided to do nothing? Is that actually what happened? Right. But that's what the article is trying to say. So Sounds anyway. biased. <clears throat> that's, it almost <laughs> does sound biased. Maybe Amazon should sue them bigly. <laughs> yeah. You got this uh, NBA thing? Yeah. So next, okay. uh, NBA legend Michael Jordan opens medical clinic for underprivileged patients in Charlotte. So that's pretty cool. It is good. But yeah. you got an old NBA uh, legend. NBA. There's not so great news about the NBA recently. Not a lot. But this one is pretty good. And it's good to mix in some good news here. Maybe this was just a marketing ploy by the NBA. Yeah. <laughs> 
That might be and what so it is. So Michael Jordan donated seven million dollars. Uh, and he opened up a couple clinics, right? Opened yeah, up a see, couple uh, medical clinics in Charlotte for the underprivileged. Yeah, so it's two different. Uh, let's see, Novant Health, which will operate the facility in West Charlotte, tweeted Thursday that Jordan had donated $7 million to help make the Michael Jordan Family Medical Clinic a reality. So it's going to be serving, yeah, uninsured people, people who don't have money for its uh, general practitioners and things like that. So it, that's really good. And it it only took a seven million dollar donation from Michael Jordan to do that. Mm-hmm. So my question was, let's think about where money is better suited in the hands of the government or in the hands of Michael Jordan. Because how long how long would it have taken for the government to spend seven million dollars? Hmm. Fifty three seconds, give or take a second. Yep, actually, yeah, it just depends on what exactly their budget is. But that is based on a budget of four point three trillion dollars. And that is down to the how much money they would spend per second. And then I divided that into the seven million that he spent and came up with 53 seconds. (laughs) So 53 seconds to spend seven million. And what does your government do for you? Uh, Well, everybody likes to mention roads. I don't know. Jesus, police. (laughs) This is this is a big story here. Norwegians have been told to pee in the shower to save water. Those socialists. <laughs> Those socialists. You can't, <laughs> look, you can't trust anything they say. Yeah. Oh, man. This so, is another good story, right? Water conservation. Water conservation. So this is good for the environment, right? You just pee in the shower. Now, Charlie, I don't know what your experience level is with peeing in the shower, but I just, you know, I, I was open to listening to this as a theory, you know, so I just want to try and calculate... Um, how I mean, how long? Like when? How long do you think it takes? Like when you pee? Was that like about a minute? I'd say a probably. minute. Yeah, thirty seconds. Yeah, yeah, thirty seconds to a minute. Depends on how bad you gotta go. I guess so. Yeah, there's something I've peed for a couple minutes before. <laughs> so I was like, just me wanting to chair, just kind of pick at these stories. I was like, is this actually gonna save water? Because on average, you use two point two gallons per minute in the shower. So you might go through about over two gallons of water while you're peeing. And uh, the average toilet uses about 1.5 gallons of water per flush. So what you'd have to do, just so you guys at home know, what you would have to do is multitask. you got to make sure that you're peeing and washing your body at the same time. Now, I've, so, I've actually heard a lot of people do pee in the shower. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it happens. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not saying that I've never peed in the shower before. Uh, but I will say, with 100% fact, I never did it to save water. No. That was never the reasoning. It was just convenience. Yeah, it was honestly efficiency <laughs> for time. Right. Now, if you want to make an efficiency for time argument right here, then I'm completely behind How that. How much is your time worth? Yeah. I mean, you're you're shaving a minute off uh, of time that you would have spent standing in one location to, <laughs> doing, <laughs> just doing nothing with your life. <laughs> I mean, you might as well get as efficient as possible, I guess. Have you ever <laughs> had to pee so bad? And and women probably don't know this as much as men do. But have you ever like had to pee, I mean, just so bad? Like, you just really had to go. And you like walk up to a urinal and you're basically at a urinal at the same time another guy is and you're peeing and you're going for a really long time. And you remember you had to pee like the worst pee you've ever had in your life (laughs) and you get done and that other guy's still going. Yeah. (laughs) And you're like, how in the world does he even hold all that? I like, especially me, I'm a big dude. So you would think I have a big bladder. I don't know. I haven't looked at it. It's probably 
bigger than the average size. Yeah, you would think. And so, um, you know, there's been times where I've had to go so bad, like worst pee of your entire life. And literally same time as another guy. And that guy's still going. Now, I might have been guilty of this because I've had the pee and I've gone through two different guys went through while I was standing there peeing all the way. You're the, yeah, you're one of those. I'm, I'm that guy. Yeah, you've yeah. got an extra. I'm like Austin Powers when he wakes up bladder. from his cryo sleep, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> one more story here. Oh, baby! <laughs> one more story from Fox News. Uh, we got Beto O'Rourke, which, if you guys don't know, he's running for president. I don't know oh. if many people know that. He's trying. I'm pretty sure at this point he's got less than 10 people that support him for president. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. I don't even know how he makes the debates anymore. <laughs> I'm, that is that is surprising to me. He so, will forever be famous for almost beating Ted Cruz. <laughs> so, I guess so. That hey, time he almost won an election. You still lost. And but... then said that he was going to take all of your guns away. Yeah. So And then said he wasn't. And then said that he was after that. So uh, he's saying that Congress should block Trump from hosting the G7 summit at one of his hotels. Did you hear about this? That the, they're having the G7 summit and they've decided to do it at one of Trump's hotels. Instead of Camp David, I think, is yes. where it usually takes place. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I was kind of back and forth on this because I read the story and the, he said that they were going to do it at cost. Every Everything's at cost. So they're not doing it, at, you know, at a profit on the rooms and the events and all that kind of stuff. So at first I'm like, okay... Maybe this is gonna it's gonna save money because maybe after he does this at cost, what it could be like way cheaper than any other place that they could go. Uh, although I don't know what it would cost to do it at Camp David, but anyway, it could be way cheaper than a lot of other hotels they could go because he owns a hotel and he could do it at cost when other people maybe wouldn't do it at cost. Yeah. So there's a chance it could actually save money. So at first I'm like, okay, well this sounds eh, that's good. Save money. Use use the fact that you have a hotel. And then I just keep thinking about it, and I can't decide where I'm at on it because he is bringing hundreds of people, uh, you know, including media and all the people that come with these people. So um, <clears throat> bringing that many people to one of his resorts, I bet they're going to buy like a lot of drinks and things like that while they're there, and it probably will still end up being profitable for his corporation. Well, I mean, yeah, because you have to pay the people that work there. Yeah, so they're going to be... And but if, if everybody gets a bonus? If they're doing everything at cost, then that's only accounting for paying the people that are working there and not making extra money on top of it. So, I don't know. I don't know where I come down on this one. I understand what people say about it, but, I mean, I don't, it's kind of a fact of politics these days that uh, you use the office of the president to enrich yourself... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's just kind of what happens, and mo- most of the times through book deals. And then doesn't look like Obama's struggling. Know, if you're uh, if you're Joe Biden, I guess you can make your your kids and the millionaires too by getting them sweet jobs and everything. And actually, Trump, his net worth has decreased by fifty percent since he became the president. Weird. So it's not exactly like it has enriched himself or anything like that. And I don't think it's going to do a lot to help his brand either, because now. Um, half of the country is vehemently opposed to doing anything that has to do with the Trump brand. So mm, I don't know. Still help his brand. Probably still good. Yeah. Probably still good. What's yeah. that? Uh, any publicity is good publicity. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. So the more people you can get in front of, the better. Anyway, I mean, if you guys listening, um, you know, let us let us know what you think about that. I'm not sure where I come down on it. Um, 
overall, if it saves money compared to somewhere else, then I think it's a then I think it's a good thing. So that that's where I would come down is if it saves money, that's good. My thing is the, on the on the hierarchy of things that we should care about. This one's pretty low. Yeah. So. I mean, in my estimation, who cares? Like <laughs> by I'm your wor- estimation, you don't I, care. I'm worried about like starving people and like curing diseases and yeah, you know, efficient energy and cheaper goods. Efficient urination. Yeah. All those yes. important things. Very efficient urination. Yeah. Incontinence is not a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess that wraps Reducing, up. Reducing <laughs> I'm 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 for reducing poverty and reducing healthcare regulations and making healthcare cheaper. Okay. Okay. Uh, where Trump holds a a bogus summit anyway, like what is the G7 yeah. summit? Why don't we have that conversation? Like who cares? Let's just not have the G7 summit. Just don't bring him in. Yeah. Why are we paying for all these people to be here to begin with? I don't know. I don't know. You could say that about a lot of stuff. Why don't we fight him over there? <laughs> Speaking of fighting, this is our main topic for the day, by the way. Another headline. This war, this war that was actually declared in 1964. It's America's last declared war, by the way. Oh, okay. Well, actually, the war on drugs would have been another one. Wait, can we talk about this declared war first before we dive into this? Because I wanted to mention another headline. I forgot to tell you about this. Um, Nate puts all of our headlines together, and (laughs) I miss telling him this one. Did you see the House voted... Oh, yeah. They voted <clears throat> to say, sorry, I was peeking a little bit there. <laughs> the House voted to say that they disagree with Trump's removal of the yeah. troops from Syria. How backwards is that? Now, can anybody tell me? <laughs> can anyone tell me? Does the House get to vote on war? <laughs> well, um, they do get to vote on war. Actually, they're supposed to yeah. vote on war. Like that's their obligation. This might be the most backwards vote on war that there's ever been, where we were engaged in a country where Congress did not approve the war itself, and then the president tried to remove the illegally placed U.S. soldiers from the country, and Congress voted to condemn the president's action of removing the soldiers from a war that Congress never declared. And you know, it's like so hypocritical and it's almost comical is that if they really, if they really disagree with Trump on this, they could actually vote to declare war yeah. on Syria. So I wrote an article and about that last Trump week. Trump like, would be obligated yeah. to move troops in yeah. and act as commander in chief. That's how fake this is. It's so it's so bogus and political, and it, every single person that voted for that should be voted out of office. If they, if Congress wants soldiers to go back into Syria to protect the Kurds, instead of voting against Trump's actions, they could have voted to declare war in Syria. But then they would have blood on their own hands, yeah. and they don't want that. They want to be able to use the president as a scapegoat. Yep, yep. I yep. mean, honestly, they're pretty smart. <laughs> but it, what they do is illegal. It's just it just blows my mind, and the American people are just oblivious. Yep, you know ignorance is bliss, man. That whole just that is. whole just not caring, like my God, <laughs> we need you know I'm I'm against restricting voters, but there at least should be <clears throat> one question that says, do you actually care? Yeah, 
Maybe like and a math you, question before the rest of your votes count. <laughs> Something like that. See, now we're getting a little bit too yeah, arbitrary. Sorry, we're sorry. getting a little bit too, you know. Uh, math you know, is I just the construct anyway. So. Yeah, and I don't want to, look, I don't want to restrict anybody from voting, but if you're going to vote, you should at least care. Yeah. That's it. There's one question, like, do you care? I don't think that's a hard line. Like, that's not... You're not going against anybody's IQ or anybody's like ethnic background. It's not racial. It's nothing. It's like, do you actually care? And if you don't, don't vote. Yeah. You could put in there whether or not you would be a benefit of the things that you're voting for, just so you would know, you know? Right. Just to know that. I don't know. I don't think we can put many restrictions on voting. Uh, Well, there's also, what's this new thing they're doing? Some states are doing it where... Uh, is is it in, only in the primaries, or is this in the general election too, where like you literally just vote Democrat or Republican and it votes for everybody down the party line? That's What's a, that called? <clears throat> that's primary. That's um, straight straight line ballot. Is that what that is, or yeah, some, something, something like, like that? Something something like that. Yeah. That's the most absurd thing ever. Well, here in Tennessee, when you go for the primary, they ask you which party uh, ballot you want before you vote in the primary. Yeah, but you don't have to vote. What? You, you don't have to vote for the person because you're still voting for each individual. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. That, that automatically casts a vote for all of the people in that. I got, yeah, 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 I understand. You don't even see the names. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how many places do that, but that's, that's insane. That's really crazy. Yeah. You just hit one. I mean, it's, a, it's efficient, I guess, but <laughs> how do you even know who you're voting for? Democrat, just Republican. Yeah. You know, it's pretty ridiculous. What about, you know, what if there's more than one? When I went to vote, I they didn't have an option for libertarian ballot when I went there. Mm-mm. The independent was the only non-Republican or Democrat ballot that you could ask for. Uh, so I asked for independent and come to find out I had like no options to vote for on that ballot at, at all. I don't know who I should have asked for to get a libertarian candidate. But I guess you just couldn't do that. I don't know. Yeah, they don't count in the primary. Which Tennessee, what they require you to have about 250 million signatures to get a libertarian on the ballot, something well, like so that. Well, so if you're running as a Republican or Democrat, I think it's 25 signatures. Yeah. And now, as, as a libertarian, they upped it to 10,000. <laughs> so to be recognized as a party, they upped it to 10,000. And they just keep making up rules. That's not biased whatsoever. And actually, like, the Libertarian Party achieved the first mark. I can't remember what it was. It was, like, 5,000. They achieved it. They actually got this, that many signatures, and then they upped it to, like, 10. And yeah. it might be at 20 now. Who and knows? then, so the Libertarians had a, held a protest vote, basically, for governor, where they put they put up 20 different independent candidates for governor on the general ballot. Yeah. And so you had to scroll through, like, three pages of governor selections. And it was just the Libertarian Party basically putting as many people on there as they could under independent names just to make a point. That's, just that's to make it, it harder. It was hilarious. Yeah, good stuff. <clears throat> so, um, so I, all right, on to <clears throat> peeing in the shower. Yep, let's talk Is about... That what we're diving let's into? Let's talk about frequent <laughs> urination. No, um, so I've got the war on poverty lined up to talk about today because... That's oh, right, we were talking <clears throat> about declaring war. Yes, we were declaring war. And in 1964... Lyndon B. Johnson declared war. And no, it was it was not on Vietnam. OLBJ. Yep. It, uh, he declared war on poverty at that point in time. So I wanted to look at how how effective that's been. Because if anything, we care about, and this ties into what I talked about on the show yesterday, if you listen to that, we care about helping people that are poor. Neil deGrasse Tyson said he thought libertarianism was really interesting, but that he couldn't be a libertarian because he wants to help people. That was his reasoning. 
And he's a very smart and fairly objective person. Mm -hmm. And that was his take on libertarianism. So Which is not a good take. That's not a good take whatsoever. So it means we're doing something wrong. And that, that's what I said on the podcast yesterday, that we have to take responsibility for that, that that is the marketing, that is the viewpoint of libertarianism, is that we don't care about anyone except for ourselves. That is the general thesis of libertarianism. So, and it couldn't be further from the <clears throat> truth. Yeah. And so I wanted to talk about the war on poverty and all this money that we've put towards it and whether or not it's actually worked, because we want to alleviate poverty. That's like one of the top goals that libertarians even have is to alleviate poverty. We just have different ways of getting there than, say, the socialists do. So we have like the way. We have the only, yeah, the yeah. only actual way that would work. It the just only, yeah. it sounds way harder than the other ways because it is, uh, but it, it's the only one that would actually work. Yep. So um, I I wanted to talk about how much money we've spent. Since 1964. Can I make a comment on that real quick, though? Yeah. Because, like, okay, if you're building something complicated, like a rocket ship. Yeah. Don't you want, like, rocket scientists to work on it? Yeah. So if you're constructing something, like, really complicated, like an economic society. Yeah. Wouldn't you want people who know a lot about... I think you should listen to celebrities that tweet about it, honestly. <laughs> I mean, just wouldn't you want to know? Actually, Thomas Sowell talks about that in Basic Economics at the beginning, that it's weird. You know, you're not just going to throw out your opinion on science. Like, you're not going to be like, oh, well, I think this about this scientific principle. You know, no one's going to do that. Right. You don't know anything about science. Therefore, you're not going to tweet your personal opinion about scientific facts or anything, but he said that it's different for, it's weird with economics that people who don't understand economics or how complicated it is whatsoever just feel that they can just comment on economics all the time. It's like, well, not only like how complicated society as a whole is. I yeah. mean, it's just like to get people to cooperate. You know, one thing I like Peterson talks about again, I know I've mentioned him a lot on this show, but it's like, it's actually amazing that all of us can cooperate the way that we do. We're not just killing each other because that was, you know, human history for the longest time. It's animal history for the longest time, you know, a territorial, like, you know, people were boycotting Christopher Columbus. It's like, okay, whatever. Maybe he did some bad things, but so were all the American Indians. They were all murdering each other to begin with. Yeah. Like everybody, we were so territorial and it's amazing. We can live in this giant country and for the most part, we're in relative peace. Like, that's actually a, a, a miracle that that's happened. Yeah. That's, but it's, it's very complicated how all of that's intertwined. And wouldn't, you would just think, like, what Milton Friedman made a comment the other day about, you know, doctor treating you for cancer. You know, like, if you, if there's something going wrong, wouldn't you go to someone who actually knows what they're doing. Yeah, because he was talking about poverty and basically ideas on welfare, and someone yells out in the crowd, well, have you ever been poor? And he said, yes, I have been poor. But then he says, well, would any of you guys say that you would not want a doctor to treat you for cancer that hasn't had cancer? Like, right. That's not what you would say. Yeah. Like, you're only going to listen to a doctor who's got the ailments that you do? Right. No, it doesn't make any sense at all. You're going to listen to a doctor. And look, you know? there's no arbitrary like license that you need or you don't need to go to school. You just need to educate yourself in economics. And you know what's crazy about this is, is like you obviously having an economics degree is a good thing because that means you have done at least some curriculum. But you can also, there's textbooks out there that you can read like basic economics. And I can tell you Nate's better at this than I am. He's spent more time studying it. But I have a friend of mine 
who is in, uh, who's getting his degree in economics right now, who asks me questions on economics. <laughs> and he's like, hey, what do you think about this? I think this is interesting. Or he'll make a comment about a, a, a talk that I'm in and he'll say, um, you know, like the other day I mentioned tariffs being a bad thing. And he's like, I want to argue with Charlie because uh, I just want to argue with him. But actually, he's right, <laughs> you know, because economically speaking, tariffs are a really bad thing. And so it's like you don't have to go get an economics degree to understand economics. It, it, it gets pretty complicated on, the, on a lot of things, but you can get an idea of what basic economics is. By reading things like economics in one lesson or basic economics, there's all kinds of videos, YouTube videos and all yeah. kinds of things out there where you can actually learn from all kinds of people. Well, what you could do if you want to make comments on economics, you realize there's really only two questions that you need to ask yourself when you hear some kind of a policy. One, you have to realize that in economics, there's no, uh, there's only trade-offs. That's, that's all there is. If money is taken from something to put towards something else, you have to remember that that is some type of trade-off. If people's time and resources are spent uh, cutting down trees and using them to make pencils, the trade-off is that that wood didn't go to making houses. There's always a trade-off in economics. So you have to ask yourself, what trade-off is this making? What are we, if we're going to do this, then what trade-off is that? What is the other alternative use for that resource? So that's the one thing you got to ask. And then the second... Well, I want to clarify that real quick, though, because I think some people could take it as, oh, there's only a certain amount of wealth, and if the rich people hoard it, then you can't create your own. That, yeah. There's no zero-sum game when it comes to wealth, creation of wealth. And so, like, if you, you know, if you take from the poor people and you give it from the rich, it doesn't mean that poor people can't get richer themselves, I just wanted to draw that, yeah, that no, that's comparison true. That's because good. the allocation of scarce resources it has nothing to do with wealth at all. The only other, the other thing you need to ask, and this is kind of the most important thing you can ask to formulate an opinion on an economic, uh, some type of economic propos proposal, is what incentive does this create? Economics, you have to just think about incentives all the time. And so when you see some kind of proposal, you have to say, well, what incentives does this create in the market? And are those incentives, when acted out, going to be better or worse than what is currently happening? The, that's why we love the free market and capitalism so much, is because when you allow people to seek their own value and the profit off of their own labor and their own value, the incentive that that creates is that you have to produce value for other people. That's the incentive in free market capitalism. So you always have to ask what the incentive is going to be. If you make a law saying that you can't deny home loans to poor people and that you're going to cover the bank's losses if it goes terribly, what incentive does that create? The incentive that it creates is for the bankers to loan out as much money as dangerously as possible and to do all kinds of terrible things with it because you told them that you were going to cover their risk if they did lose money and that it was going to be illegal for them to redline certain districts and not give home loans in those districts. What incentive did you create? Well, that incentive created the housing bubble. So you have to always ask yourself, what incentive is being created by this policy? And, so, and look, look more than surface level, because as Nate mentioned, the first part of that is like, okay, so you want to help you know poor people get loans or people with bad credit scores get loans and you can't red like the district, so you're... Your initial incentive is to help poor people, but what are the act like? What else can happen? 
Yeah. Like, because that policy is instituted, what else could happen? And that's what nobody thinks about. Then nobody thinks about the what else. Yeah, and the problem in that system is eventually... So, if you're a free market person like we are, you think, well, don't make those laws and and don't tell them that you're going to cover their risk, and then you don't create the incentive for all of that, uh, all of that fraud to happen. And then maybe a socialist would say, well... Okay, yeah, that's created. So we have to make a bunch more regulations saying that the bankers can't do this and they can't do that. And this is how much money they can charge. And this is all the rates that they have to be able to charge. And so then you have to ask what incentive that creates. Well, then it just creates incentive to not loan out any money to anyone. Because once you tell them that they have to give out loans to risky people and then tell them that they can't make a certain amount of money off of it and then that you're not going to cover them if they do lose money, well, they're just not going to give out the loans at at all. Right. None of them. So that's what happens in socialism is eventually once you put all those rules on the system – People stop producing things. The The investment money doesn't go towards that sector of the economy anymore. Because Some, it's not worth it. Sometimes it's houses. Sometimes it's food. Sometimes it's bringing water to people. You know, it's really important things like that. So you have to ask yourself, what incentive structures are your system setting up? And f- free market capitalism is the best one because the ultimate incentive it sets up is for you to help others and to provide value to others. And it's a system so complicated that you can't have a few people centrally planning everything. No, it's no. been it fails every time. But this this is also the the argument that we make against the minimum wage. It's like okay, the initial intent is to help poor people make more money, but then, like, what if a poor person making seven fifty dollars seven dollars and fifty cents an hour right now? What if they don't get a job? Like, what if they lose their job? Yeah, is them making zero dollars worse? Yeah, the ultimate minimum wage is always zero. Exactly, because like, what if the company can't afford to pay that person fifteen dollars an hour? They can afford to pay him seven fifty, and at least they have a job right now where they can actually increase their skills and move up. Whereas if they can't afford, like, if nobody can find a job, well, then you're at zero. Yeah. So th- those are the negative consequences that never get talked about. It's w- only what the initial intention is. When you make that law, here's what you're saying. You're going to employ someone, and it's either going to be at $15 an hour or zero. Those are the two options that right. you're setting up. And so you have to ask yourself in this market, if you're at McDonald's and you're selling things super cheap, well, are more people going to gravitate towards the zero or towards the $15 an hour? Which one's going to happen? And it's it's not obviously better that having a lot of people make no money is better than having a lot of people make 7 or $8 an hour. Right. So, And I'm not arguing that people should make really low amounts of money per hour, but if that is the pro, if that is the value of your labor, of the product of your labor, if you work somewhere that sells things for very, very cheap to people, that might actually be the value that you're producing. And maybe you can gain skills and learn different things that can help you continue to move up. I didn't know, I did not realize that Doug McMillan, the CEO of Walmart, started working at Walmart when he was 16 years old as a, as a stalker. He really? Been, he's been at Walmart his entire life. He worked his way up from minimum wage at something like, I mean, it was like 4 or $5 an hour at that time at Walmart to being the CEO of the company. Wow. I mean, I, didn't, I did not know that until I was doing some research on a meme I was making last night about CEO pay. And even like most of the uh, McDonald's execs I know all started at McDonald's as like burger flippers or yep. whatever, and they worked their way up through the company. It's like 
the opportunity is there. And well, are you going to take advantage of it? Well, the one of the main guys uh, of McDonald's, I can't remember his name now, but he started, his original job was uh, on the grill at McDonald's when McDonald's first started. And he ended up being, he ended up like running the company several years later. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's I don't know. You, you just have to be open to the free market solving these problems because it is, it is the best mechanism for solving these problems, as we're about to tell you. Yeah. Right now. So the war on poverty, 1964. So since then, just so you know, in 1964, the poverty rate, the amount of people in poverty in the U.S., that rate was 17.3%. Okay. So today that rate is at 12.3%. So some people could make the argument that we have reduced poverty, but we have to look at, at what cost. That that's a really important question, and uh, what and the time, and how much time did it take? Which also is cost. <laughs> yeah, it is. So, since then, since 1964, we've spent about 27 trillion dollars fighting poverty through different welfare programs, Medicaid, food stamps. All over these. 10 years, or uh, that is over 55 years. We've spent 27, 27 trillion dollars. 27 trillion. Yeah. So. Uh, when I think about a number like that, the immediate thing I go to is, my God, that's $27 trillion that was taken out of the productive economy, the productive side of the economy, and just given to the consumer side of the economy, which some people might think is a good thing because those people you know, need money to spend on things, I guess, and they think that that can grow an economy. But what we've seen is that the, the poverty rate is really has really been unchanged and i know it dropped from 17.3 percent to 12.3 percent and and that's since 1964 by the way but one really important thing to realize is while in 1964 the rate was in fact 17.3 percent the poverty rate was already falling by a very rapid rate before the war on poverty Came in, so you could look at the uh, the ten years after the the war on poverty, the poverty rate went from seventeen point three percent down to twelve point five percent. So that's good. A lot of people who are proponents of the war on poverty, of all the welfare spending, they're like, "Hey, look, we reduced poverty from seventeen point three percent down to twelve point five percent. That's a drop of twenty seven percent. That's the difference. Twenty seven percent difference between those two numbers." I know there's a lot of numbers. It can kind of get confusing, but I did write an article on our website if you guys want to look at that. So um, that's a drop of 27% in those two numbers after 10 years. So everyone's like, oh, wow, look, this war on poverty, this is obviously working. We need to keep spending more money on this. That way we can keep helping people. So what you have to look at is what was the poverty rate doing in the 10 years prior to 1964 because they can jump in in 1964 and take credit for it all they want to so from 1954 to 1964 it, uh, it must have been going up because there was no war that's why they had to start the war was because it was obviously going up right yeah. that so they had to institute this war and stop the poverty rate from going up no what actually what actually happened in the 10 years before the war on poverty was that the rate dropped from 26% of the population in poverty down to that 17.3%. So that's an actual percentage drop of 33%. That's a 33% decline in the rate of poverty in the 10 years before 
the war on poverty started. A 33% drop. So you're saying it was going down before the war started. It was going down not just before it started. It was going down at a faster rate before it started. Wow. And the rate actually slowed in the 10 years after they started the war on poverty. And then it hit a bottom, and it's been kind of inching its way back up since then. It's been going up and down, you know, 15%, down to 12, 15, 17, down to 12 since, since then. But we spent $27 trillion fighting poverty. And that's, I wanted to imagine that money in the market and like for people that were starting businesses or for using that money for whatever they wanted to use it for, some so of it going if, into investment. You you're know? saying if we wouldn't have taken it out of the market, which is what the government did, yes. took it out of the market and decided to spend it on this war on poverty, if we wouldn't have done that. What could have happened? What could have happened? To me, that's the biggest question. That's the unseen, by the right. way. We talk about the unseen a lot. You, can't, you cannot pinpoint exactly what would have happened, which is what I do say at the end of this article I wrote today. We, we don't know for sure what would have happened. But I can tell you what that money could have done. I can tell you a few things that it could have done. So I pinpointed five things that that $27 trillion could have done. And so for the first couple, I imagined, what if we were taking that 27% or that 27 trillion, sorry, what if we were drawing that out over that whole time and we were just putting it into a savings account just, and now the government just had this $27 trillion savings account that they had the, they had to blow it in 2019 this year. So I was just kind of imagining like what you could do with that amount of money because trillions are really big, by the way. So what, the first thing I pinpointed was you could actually buy Apple, Apple Inc., the whole company. You could buy them 27 times because they're valued at roughly $1 trillion. Now, it took them from 1976 to last year to be worth a trillion dollars. But now you could swoop in with that money and buy them up. Not only could you do that, you could buy them up, buy Amazon up, and then buy them all over again you know, a bunch more times after that. So... First off, it's important to realize just how much money that is and what that could have done. But then I wanted to contrast that with <clears throat> how much money did Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak spend to start Apple computers at that time in 1976. <clears throat> so I had to read up on that today. Between the two of them, they came up with $1,300. That's what they had to start that. Um, that's, yeah, that's a lot of money. Steve Jobs sold his car and Steve Wozniak sold his calculator. So, wow, what kind of calculator did he have back then? I don't know. It must have been a really good one. Yeah, Texas Instruments probably. So it probably was a TI. So they sold a calculator and a car. Which, by the, uh, <laughs> I can't believe his calculator sold for five hundred dollars. Wow. <laughs> I remember. I mean, graphing calculators and stuff. Those used to be really expensive. Yeah, when you had you to know. get them in school. Yeah. <clears throat> but I don't required. know. I don't know if that's the kind of calculator Steve Wozniak had or not. But anyway, um, they came up with thirteen hundred bucks, and then they started. They built their concept, and then they got a loan for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars after that. After they built their kind of concept computer, so that's two hundred and fifty-one thousand three hundred dollars. So I wanted to imagine what what we could have done if it cost $251,000 to start Apple. Well, then what could we have done if we spent the amount of money that was spent fighting poverty that year on starting companies like Apple? 
Well, adjusted for inflation, which I had to do this after I talked to you the number earlier, Charlie, but you could have actually started 176, 176 different computer companies because they spent $200 billion fighting poverty that year. So you could have started 176 Apple computers in 1976. Companies. They, Apple yeah. companies. Apple computers, like plural, like as in that's the name of the company. But gotcha. it was at that time. But um so anyway, that's that's what uh that's what you could have done. Now they have a lot of they have, employ a lot of people. They've got a lot of value. They've added a lot of value in our lives. So I was just thinking, what would our technology look like today? If you imagine the things that Steve Jobs and Apple innovated and brought into the market, what would it look like today? If that money spent on poverty had actually been spent starting 176 more computer companies at that time, I'm not saying that's what they should have done, but that's just something to imagine. That's what could have been done with that money. Yeah, I think everyone would probably have a job. Okay, so that's how many apples we could have started. Now we need to talk about Amazon. Number two, with our $27 trillion, we could have bought Amazon 27 times, obviously, if we just had that money sitting in an account, if the government had been storing up that wealth to do something with it. That's what we could do. So then I had to look into uh, how, how Amazon started, and started by Jeff Bezos in his garage in 1994. So he took out loans for $140,000 to start Amazon. And so now, obviously, they, they've got, we just said it earlier, they've got over 600,000 employees, a lot of people working for them, and they're worth a trillion dollars. So since he spent that $140,000 starting Amazon, I wanted to compare that to the amount of money that the U.S. government spent in 1994 fighting poverty. Well, in 1994, they spent $500 billion fighting poverty. So just so you know... That amount of money would be enough to start 2,305,316 Amazon.coms in 1994. Wow. Over 2 million of them. And so then... That's a lot of books going out. That's a lot of books. A lot of books. Now, (laughs) obviously, I'm not saying there would have been a market for that and that many companies needed to exist or anything like that. But just think about the different things that could have been done in the productive economy with that $500 billion, had it been left in the hands of the people that it was taken from. And this is one of those examples. So then I threw out, even if it was, you know, we had over 2 million as an example. So I threw out in this article, even if it was 25 of those companies, of the 2 million, even if 25 of them survived and grew to be like Amazon is, there would be enough jobs. Our unemployment rate would be zero. There wouldn't be enough people to fill all of the jobs just from that company that they could have started with the money that they took and spent on poverty in well, 1994. Based, yeah, but based on our earlier article, there this would just be people dying in the warehouses. I guess, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> what would our, our yearly warehouse death be at that uh, point in uh, time? A lot more now. Man. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, in my mind, if we would have left all that money in the productive economy, we probably would have cured death by now. So yeah. <laughs> I don't think we'd have to worry about it. You know? We would have already eliminated suffering. <laughs> so, uh, so after those companies... I, I did the research and saw that we could build a lot of apartments. How many apartments? We could build apartments for everyone. And so uh, I looked up the average. Ev- like everyone? Everyone. Let me tell you about this. In, in, 
In the United States. In the United States, yeah, sorry. Probably in Canada, too, now that I look at the numbers here. Um, so the average cost of construction per apartment unit ranges from about 60000 per unit to 80000 per unit. So to be safe, I calculated this number at 90000 per unit. That's I went, probably enough to get about a three-bedroom, even. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. yeah, so I, yeah, I'm not even. I would saying, say the average apartment is probably a two bedroom. I'm not even saying how big the apartment units are in here. I'm just saying that's how much the units are. You know, right? So uh, I went ahead and rounded that up to ninety thousand just to be safe, even though that's out, that's above the range that I could find. So anyway, if we had that twenty-seven trillion dollars in our bank account, well, we could we could today decide that we're going to build three hundred million apartment units. That's more than we would even be able to fill, by the way. And that's at $90,000 per apartment unit. There's only, what, it's like a, how many adults are in the U.S.? 220 million, something like that? it's like 187 million. So that's like, if it, this is not even you living with your family or anything. This is every single adult having a, a unit for themselves. We still wouldn't be able to fill the amount of units that we could afford to build with that $27 trillion that we spent fighting poverty. That's not even just, we could not only house all the homeless people that we have, which is about 500,000 people. We could not only house all the homeless people, we could house everyone with that money. There's 209,128,094 so, people 18 years and over. Okay. <laughs> so, so we would have about 90 million apartments left over. We'd so still, we could house Canada and Mexico. Yep. Probably. I think. So we, Canada's about, what, 30 million people? Yes. Yeah, the 36 million, something like that. Yeah. I only know that because I've been looking up there, all of their stats, because I've been trying to compare different healthcare policies and things like that. So I've been studying up on Canada's population demographics. So we could do about half of Mexico and all of Canada, because Mexico has 126 million. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's not too bad. No. So instead... This is the reason I brought this up. And we'll make Mexico pay for the apartments. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. With tariffs. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, well, we're not without well, no longer build the walls. Build the apartments. <laughs> the reason I brought this up is the U.S. government spent $27 trillion trying to fight poverty, and we've still got 500,000 people that are homeless right now. So, what, like, what are they doing to fight poverty? But we could take that $27 trillion and have way too many houses for everyone. Way too many. And you know how many jobs it would create building all those houses? I'm not saying that that's what we should do because I don't think the government should take money and then spend it in the economy. To me, that's not really creation. It's not a jobs program. But you, under, you understand what I'm saying. It's ridiculous. I it's bet if ridiculous. Oprah was president, she'd be like, you get an apartment and you get an apartment. <laughs> this is exactly what Oprah and would honestly, do. And honestly, we don't even need to build that many apartments because- no. We, lots of people already have houses. You said 200 and something thousand adults, right? A million. million. About yeah. 210 million. 210 million. I mean, a lot of them live with each other because they're families or they're married. Right. You know, I mean, we don't even need that many. We could spend that money on other things as if uh, kind of like what I'm about to talk about here. Yeah. Like so, what? Um, Facebook is the next thing. We could buy Facebook, which is valued at $540 billion. With our $27 trillion account, we could buy Facebook 54 times over. We could give them 54 times value on their, on their company, hmm. uh, which would be a pretty good valuation. So in 2004, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Eduardo Saverin, Dustin Moskovitz, and Chris Hughes started Facebook, 
with $19,000, which famously was depicted in the movie Social Network, was all given by, what's his name, Eduardo Saverin. So they started the company. Well, and the Wozniakis. The, uh, or what, are the, what, what, what were their no, names? No, no, the, um, the uh, Winklevoss. The Winklevosses. The Winklevi. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, just one of them. Yeah, so um, so they, uh, they took $19,000 and made Facebook. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good return on investment, by the way. I'd say. Yeah. 500 pre- billion. Pretty good return on investment. So, and Facebook's got about 7,000 employees. So that $19,000 in 2004, well, the U.S. government spent $750 billion fighting poverty in 2004. $750 billion that they took out of the economy and spent on fighting poverty. Well, what they could have done was start 31,250,000 different social networking companies with that money. That's a lot of social networking companies. That is. So obviously there was not a market for that, but just so you know the size and scope of that money that they took and put towards fighting poverty. So I even pinpointed, you know, Facebook's got 7,000 employees. Even if 90% of those companies failed, all those ones that they started with all that money, even if 90% of those companies failed, that would still be enough jobs for every single person in the U.S. Not, not counting every other business that's in the U.S., just if nine, if only 10% of those companies survive, that would be a job for every single person. That's a lot of dough. And, you know, what do we talk about? What people in poverty need is a job. They need a way, you know, because money is a representation of the value that you've provided in society. I'm sorry to say that. Some people don't like that. It can hurt your feelings. I, I get that. It's a representation of the monetary value that you've created in society. Mm-hmm. So... This doesn't work out well for people who work in very heavily regulated markets or for people who work for the government, like school teachers and police officers. You're not paid based on the value that you're creating in society. You're paid based off a government chart that says how much you're supposed to be paid. And if you're a a nurse or a doctor, something like that, well, you're in the most heavily regulated industry in our entire country. So you're paid based on the most regulated pay scale the most regulated budget and expenditures that there is in the entire country. So not exactly a free market. The other thing I'm getting out of this, it it seems like throwing money, which is what the war on poverty has basically been, seems to me that it's not that's not working. It's, and there's an old, old, old principle about this, right? I don't know. It, it, I'm not that old. It's from it's from Matthew when the New Testament was written, mm. like over two thousand years ago. That says man does not live by bread alone. Yeah. So like just giving people money or it seems like they're squandering a lot of it because I don't even see them giving this amount of money to anybody. No. So so it doesn't seem like that's actually working Yeah. because we're still at 12, a little over 12% poverty. We haven't done anything since the 60s. It literally looks like we've done nothing. Yeah, the rate's the same. It's it's twenty trillion since nineteen sixty nine we've spent, and the rate's actually a little bit higher now than it was in nineteen sixty nine. Wow. Yeah. So what? So you have to ask yourself, like, are we actually fixing the problem? Like we've we've uh, we decided on a solution. That solution has played out for over fifty years now. Is it working? And who's asking that? Like, why are we not asking that question? Is this war actually working? And if it's not, what do we do to fix it? Yeah, I'm against all wars, honestly. Yeah. All of them. Wars on poverty, on people, 
on drugs. On drugs. All of them. Drugs mm. are bad. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm, I'm not saying that. But well, there shouldn't be a war. I don't think that that's exactly been a success either. So the last thing I pinpointed here was that we could give free college to everyone every single year. Well, now you're just a socialist. Yeah, I'm not saying that that's what we should do. But I do think it's important to understand the size and scope of this money that we've been spending. And with all the people talking about how expensive college is and how people can't afford it and everything, we could actually, with the money that we spend every single year fighting poverty, we could afford, in today's money, in today's tuition prices, we could afford to pay for college tuition for 80 million students. Now there's only- Every year? Every single year. Wow. Now there's only 15 million students in college. So it's still many times over the amount of money we would need. You think about the total college debt over all these years, it's accumulated to $1.6 trillion. I'm talking about we spend a trillion a year on poverty right now. A little bit more than that, actually. So, and then What constitutes all that? Um, it is uh, so food stamps. It is the uh, Medicaid, any kind of welfare spending that there is whatsoever. Medicaid's one of the biggest ones. So it is it is counting Medicaid in that. Um, and then I can't remember what the other big things were that made it up, that made up that money. I don't know. It's here in the, any kind of social welfare program that there is. It's not counting um, Medicare or Social Security or anything like that. It's just counting the different welfare programs. So... Um, That's a lot. Yeah, subsidies for housing, all all kinds of things like that. So they didn't realize they had taken enough money to build everyone a house. But uh, (laughs) yeah. So um, So this also points out that government's not very efficient. No, they're not. I mean, spending money either. I've said this on the podcast before, but I used to flip houses in Nashville and I worked with a guy who was a contractor building houses, Section 8 housing, HUD housing in Nashville. For the government. And he was. Very happy to explain how corrupt that entire system was uh, and the fact that by the time someone actually moved into a house, they had technically put eight different roofs on the house. He had one of the, he had one of the crews that, that did the roof on the house. But what they would do is they would put a roof on the house and then they would go to the person who dictates the budget and the expenditures and say, hey, there's something wrong with that roof. We got to do a new roof. And so some money would go under the table there to the contracting from the contracting company that wanted to give it to the person who made that decision to put another roof on the house. And then they would just keep repeating, ripping off the roof and putting on a new roof to the point that uh, some of the houses would get upwards of eight roofs put on them before they were ever moved into. That's a solid <laughs> house, though. It is. I bet. It is. I don't know if they were running some kind of a roofing a, roofing a training program off of that <laughs> i think that would have been been a good use of the money i, mean, I bet it can maybe i bet it can withstand hurricane force winds no. yeah so yeah so that i bet the, they used mighty men to put it on they probably they probably did <laughs> the um so the reason i just wanted to go through those is like charlie said i mean we've been throwing money at this problem for 55 years now and it hasn't worked uh, it just clearly is not working and if your goal is to help poor people and to get people out of poverty, then we need to stop acting like the only option is to tax money from people and throw it at the problem. It's, right. It doesn't solve the problem. It does not. <clears throat> and in fact, like I pinpointed with all of these different free market things that could have happened, I think a strong case can be made that we would have been do- we would have done a much better job alleviating poverty 
had that money been left in the hands of the people it was taken from. And think about what happened before, I mean, even before income tax in 1913, right? Think about all the advancements that civilized, uh, capitalistic, free markets made. Um, I've gone over this over and over and over again, because here's the thing. If we're bashing this, then what's the actual solution? Well, the solution is more freedom, more free markets, more capitalism. Yeah. You know, we have to be the, the capitalist, um, the capitalist of America because the, the welfare state is a catalyst to actually helping people in poverty. So we have to, we have to assert um, and and debunk a lot of these myths that you know throwing cash at a problem fixes it. Look at the education system. More money does not equal better education. And we spend the second you know? second most per student in the entire world. Yeah, and we're ranked around twenty fifth in everything. Yeah. So just throwing money doesn't actually work. What actually works because people need more than just money anyway to live a meaningful life. You have to have purpose and other things to actually go through life and like look at people that even have all the money in the world that still commit suicide. So life is more than just, you know, being above poverty. You have to have something more than that to actually move ahead in the world, let's say. But it's like, if you look at the abysmal state that all of humanity was in until about, you know, the late 1800s when the industrial revolution started, when free markets and ideas and things were able to be, to, to be produced and then consumed I mean, look at where we live today. It's unbelievable. It's like act- the poorest people among us are so rich. It's insane. Well, it's insane. We're even rich. I mean, by the po- the poverty standards in 1964, by those standards, technically we have no one in poverty right now, unless they just literally can't afford food. Like uh, if you have a, a smartphone, I don't care if it's an iPhone or Samsung, it doesn't matter. If you have a smartphone, you are not poor. Yeah. I tweeted that earlier. <laughs> Like public service announcement, if you have a smartphone, you're not poor. True. You're not. You have a freaking handheld computer that sends signal to space. You're not poor. It's one of my favorite things I ever heard from uh, Tom Woods, actually, was he was talking about the the natural state, kind of what you're saying. The natural state of humanity is poverty. It's depravity. That's, it's the, it, that is the natural state of a human being, is living in the woods or in a hut somewhere, trying to have shelter, trying to kill your food that day. That's the natural state of humanity for most of all of our existence. So he said the the question is, it's not why do we have people in poverty today? It's how the heck do we have so many people who aren't in poverty today? Right. That's the real question to ask. How did we achieve that? Yeah. And so when you ask yourself, how do we achieve that? Well, then you should want to do more of that. And it wasn't government spending that created all of this stuff that we have, all of these things, the standard of living that we have right now. That's what I love. Milton Friedman talks about that. He's like, you know, it wasn't, you know, government bureaucrats who helped Henry Ford revolutionize the automobile industry. Yeah. You know, it wasn't yep. dictated by fiat. Yep. He says uh, Einstein didn't construct his theory that way. And all this, I mean, the way that he would respond to things is, is so amazing. But right. um, yeah, th- that's the question is, is why do we have all of these things? What incentive structure created all of those things to come into, incentivize all of those things to be created and come into existence? And are we pursuing that system right now? Or are we going away from that system right now? And I think we're actually going away from that system right now. And what we need to do is go back to the 
free market that was the case, obviously, even more so 100 years ago, 150 years ago. I'm not saying that, obviously, standard of living was. It's not that the our, our morals and our values were perfect at that time, nothing like that. But we could go back to the free market system that we had living within the moral structure that we have today, and it would actually be, I, I just, my imagination when I think about what the world would look like if the government stopped stealing money from people, it's just, it, it looks like the, have you ever watched the Jetsons? Like that's, yeah. what it, that's what it looks like. I have some real world examples for you, by the way, in reading the case against socialism. Yeah. So South America is a great example because right now Venezuela has gone from a capitalistic country which was one of the richest countries ever. In the 70s, they were the fourth richest nation in the world, by the way. Not just in South America. It was the world. And they've moved socialists since then. Now, their GDP is growing at negative 10%, just so you know. Negative, which means it's not growing. That's not good. No, it's declining by 10%. Yeah. Whereas at one time in the 70s and 80s, when they were more capitalistic, being as oil rich as they are, their GDP was growing at like a 5% rate. Well, you saw now, this. Sorry, go ahead. I just want to contrast that. But this is real world today, what's happening right now. Chile, the another country in South America, for instance, was pretty socialist back in the 50s, 60s, 70s. They have turned into a more free market, capitalistic country with private land ownership and all of that. And their GDP is actually the fastest growing GDP now in South America. Yeah. So they, they, there's the two ideas played out right now on a continent between two different countries. And you ask yourself, which one's actually winning? It's private ownership, free market, people being able to free, people being free to make the choices they want to make, to provide value where they want to provide value, to come up with their own ideas, to have the freedom to expand on, uh, on those ideas, the freedom to produce those ideas, the freedom to offer them to the market and ask who is willing to say my idea is a good idea. That's how we got all of the great things that we have, by the way, was people being able to do that. I was talking about Denmark the other day, and we can talk about their, their social welfare system all we want, but think about all the things that even people around the world use. Most of them are pe- things that were invented in the United States, that were innovated in the United States, you know? Or you're, at least in free <clears throat> Western cultures, you you're, know? You're welcome world for, the, for flight and the affordable automobile and the computer and the internet and the smartphone and all kinds of other amazing... Oil refinery. A lot of, I mean... A lot of amazing medical technologies, all those things. Now, now those countries get to give those things away for free to people... But who created all that stuff? What country incentivized the invention of all of those things or the innovation of all those things? It was America that did that because people were able to keep the product and the fruit of their labor so people would take chances on things and take risks on things and try to invent new things because they wanted, maybe they wanted to be rich or maybe they wanted to help people. It doesn't matter. The, the end result is what matters. And you have to ask yourself, what, what Danish invention can you just not go a day without? Which one is it? What's your Danish? What's your Swedish invention that you oh, can't go without? Cheese Danishes are pretty good, man. Yeah. You ever had a cheese Danish? Other than the cheese Danish, what is the best Danish invention <laughs> that you cannot go a day without? Existentialism. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. So, so that's really. <laughs> Sorry, that's from France. <laughs> that's really. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's from, from a movie. But, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so that's the question you have to ask, and don't just pay attention. You know, everyone wants to pay attention to all the greed and terrible natures of some of the people that come up in capitalism, and sure, that exists, but. What is also the result for everyone in that system? The result for everyone has been at the level of poverty. The people who are in poverty enjoy a standard of living that even Rockefeller couldn't afford when he was alive and he was the richest person in the world. You've got air conditioning. Rockefeller could not afford air conditioning in 1900. He couldn't. He could not have paid money for air conditioning. So you have luxuries that even the richest people in the world didn't have at that point in time. And we have to ask ourselves, how did that happen? Pay attention to the good parts of that. And how can we make those good parts continue to happen? I, I, uh, I pulled, I pulled this question about who, uh, what country has contributed the most in inventions or innovations or anything like that. <clears throat> it's, it's kind of hard to quantify, but you could, the, the best answer on here is historically it is believed by experts that well over 50% of the world's most important inventions have been British. So still a Western culture, free market, yeah. English common law. Like we, the English common law is what we derive the constitution off of. But then there's a difference in that. Let me and say. And then it says with the United States contributing about half of that number. And Japan is a distant third. The United so, States contributed half of Britain's 50%? Yeah, Britain's over 50%. Okay. And the United States has contributed about half of that. So... 25 to 30%. The one thing I would say is, you know, I mentioned the automobile. And when I say the automobile, I always say the affordable automobile. Because the car was invented, I believe, in Germany like 25 years before Ford was making the Model T. But the problem was it was so expensive. Uh, they didn't have any way to make it to where people could afford to buy it. They didn't have the technology. But, but Henry Ford did not invent the automobile. He revolutionized the automobile industry by creating a way to make cars cheaper so he could make more money. And his, his incentive was to make more money. But how did he make more money? He made money by making cars cheaper so everyone could afford to buy them. Yeah, and that's one thing he mentions in the article. He's like, think about inventions that were later perfected. For instance, the television, which started in the UK, but has been proved over the decades by many, many innovations many if not most of which originated in the united states yeah so the improvement of the lot of man comes from like you don't see like tell me what north korea has invented for the world or made better <laughs> you know what communist state or socialist state where the people are not free what is made better there's like nothing literally nothing yeah. Even the nuclear, even the nuclear bomb <laughs> was invented in the United States. You're welcome, world. <laughs> yeah. You're welcome for our destruction. All right. So <laughs> we can wrap it up. We're at an hour and a half right now. Good. I don't know if you guys noticed, but we had to stop several times throughout that recording because you guys ever get that tickle in the back of your throat and it's so dry and you just have to keep coughing and clearing your throat and it never goes away. And eventually you just can't help. Your eyes are watering. Because you're trying to talk and not not have to cough a bunch. Well, it eventually went away. It did go, finished. yeah. It did go <laughs> away eventually because I chugged the can of Coke, 
and, zero. Uh, and got that Coke Zero, got that knocked down. But anyway, I don't know if you guys noticed at the beginning of the show, um, my voice sounded way different than it does right now. And it's because I was trying not to cough while I was talking the whole time. It's good that we're not live yet, but we yeah, we'll, we'll we're be going live If soon. we're live, which is going to happen in the next month, that would have been an issue we for sure. We have to do a short commercial break. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, hey, go follow us on Instagram. A lot of people are doing that, happening every day. We cannot thank you guys enough if you're already doing it. We cannot chastise you enough if you're not. So go ahead <laughs> and follow us on Instagram. At don't, Go- <laughs> don't be chastised. Be praised. At Good Morning Liberty. Our Twitter is blowing up we are up 100 percent over the last week on twitter <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh yeah go yeah. ahead and follow us on twitter yeah at good am liberty look us up on facebook good morning liberty thank you so much for helping us reach one million people through that facebook it's that is amazing cool. so cool uh that's just because you guys are sharing all of our stuff all the time and we cannot thank you enough and go hey special today by the way go to the merch store it's winter time. It's becoming winter time. It's not officially winter yet, but we've got hoodies on our store. If you're worried about mm, being cold, I love hoodies. If you're scared about that nasty cold weather that's coming your way, then go to our merch store. Go to gmlconnect.com and use the promo code podcast to get 20% off a hoodie that says taxation is theft or shall not be infringed. Capitalism is greater than socialism. We haven't we don't have a hoodie yet that says that, well, but I'll make one. I'll make one. Yeah. I'll, I'll make one today. Because I just I sold it on the show. <laughs> we'll take pre orders for the capitalism's greater than socialism hoodie that's yeah. gonna be uploaded sometime today. But uh yeah anyway do do all that stuff. We really would appreciate it. The last thing I want you guys to do well two things. I have two things for you now that I'm back. You go to BernieLies.com. Nate has done an unbelievable job revamping BernieLies.com to go against every single policy position that Bernie has, why it's wrong, all the articles that link to why everything is wrong. So go check that out, BernieLies.com. You will be absolutely amazed. The second (laughs) thing that I want you to do is leave us a rating and review. We mentioned at the beginning of the show, and five stars if you think it's worth it. This helps us rank, by the way. That's why we ask you guys to do that. It takes you 30 seconds. Just say the show's awesome. And leave us a five-star rating. That helps us rank up in there. And if you guys do all that, we will be back uh, possibly. I will not be back next week. Next week's going to be a rough week. Yes. Yeah. We're still deciding. I have to travel again, and it's possible Nate may come a day or two to travel so we can keep bringing the show. Yeah. We don't know yet. I might just be lecturing you from here. Yes. You know, my anger, my angry lectures that I give when you're gone. But until then, uh, you guys... Uh, you stay classy. You stay classy, <laughs> Liberty lovers. <laughs> we'll talk some more. Uh, we'll talk some more Liberty later. <laughs> Have a good day and a good morning, Liberty. Totally nailed that ending, by the <laughs> way. That, that was so good. So good. <laughs> <laughs>